0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host, also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school. And today I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph Piper. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Zach. Always good. We are
0: going to be conducting our monthly or so segment called Faith in Practice, where we take listener questions and field them and kick them back to you with more or less acceptable answers. Um, And of course, as always, if you have any follow-up questions, please send them our way, and we'll get them the next time and continue the conversation. Before we dive into the questions, I did want to ask Dr. Piper to open us with a word of prayer.
1: Glorious God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to you belongs all power, honor, glory, wisdom, might. You alone are a God, there is none other eternal great and glorious. We thank you for your Word, for the Spirit who illumines our understanding with your Word. We thank you for the privilege of teaching and communicating and for the technology that we have to be able to do this. We ask today, Lord, that you would truly bless as we wrestle with these very important questions and give by your Spirit wisdom and insight into your Word. we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.
0: Amen. Before we dive into the questions, I do have three announcements I want to make and put before our listeners. First, our winter term is upcoming, and as always, we have a number of courses which are open to the public if you're interested in auditing. We have Presbyterian Church History, we have Reformed Worship, we have um, Ethics, Biblical Counseling, but this year we have a special class, in fact, an elective which was never offered while I was a student, and that is Introduction to Scottish History and Theology, taught by the one and only Ian Hamilton. And I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, whether you live near or far, to um, consider auditing that course with us. It will be very interesting, and it's not a course that's easy to find otherwise. Uh, My second announcement is that our Spring Theology Conference, Light in the Darkness, Christian Living in a Post-Christian World is open for registration, and you can go to gpts.edu slash conference for information about that. The winter classes are at gpts.edu slash winter. And then finally, we have available for pre-order now, Volume 17 of the Confessional Presbyterian Journal. As you know, the seminary has assumed uh, financial responsibility and oversight of the journal this year, and we're very excited. This first edition under the aegis of GPTS will feature Herman Bavinck on the cover uh, commemorating the 100th centenary or the centenary of his uh, passing into glory. He died in 1921, and it's 2021. We have a number of essays and articles in there from the likes of James Englinton and Lane Tipton and Jeff Gleason and other friends and regular contributors um, of the journal and the seminary. And you can get that at gpts.edu cpjournal. You can also find it at gpts.edu shop. Of course, if you have any questions about any of these things, just contact me at info at gpts.edu. .edu. Having made those announcements, I want to dive into our questions now. Our first question comes from Isaiah Groom of Aldergrove, British Columbia, up in the far northern reaches of Canada. He asks, what do you think about the idea that George Gillespie seems to have of three separate ordinations or offices of ruling, teaching, and preaching?
1: Thank you, Isaiah. Um, He's following Calvin on that, on the basis of Ephesians chapter 4, that the gifts that Christ gave to church were apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers. And for the longest time, that has been interpreted that that's two different ordinary offices, the pastor and the teacher. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church continues to uh, hold that distinction. Now, they they would not have a distinct ordination at least I don't think they do. I think it's uh, an appointment. So you're, you're ordained to the word of the sacraments, and you're appointed either to be a pastor or a teacher. So, for example, Dr. Kirchhoff in our faculty is an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but in his presbytery he's designated a teacher. Um, I was not aware that uh, uh, Gillespie set that as a very separate ordination so that if a man went from... The pastorate to teach at the university that he would have another ordination. I don't know that that would be the case, but I'll have to look that up. But in terms of that threefold office of ruling elder, minister, and teacher, that is not quite, that's not uncommon. In the Presbyterian Church in America, um, the presbytery could designate somebody like me uh, to teach at a seminary, and that in a sense, functions in the same way. But it's it's an official office in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, as Gillespie and Calvin set it out.
0: Thank you for the question, Isaiah. If you have any follow-ups, send them our way. He asks a second question, how would you react and what advice would you give to congregants regarding an eldership that seems to have a visit-by-request policy? And and Dr. Pipe, I'm taking this in contrast to a, a Visitation Scheduled. program yeah. that's regular and and, and expected,
1: right? Uh, I I would not care for that approach to pastoral care. Although pastoral care has really fallen on hard times uh, in our day, um, I, I we prefer what Zach just summarized uh, under shepherd programs or something. where elders assign so many members within the congregation for special oversight, our elders and deacon teams. And a calendar is prepared each year. The people then are visited on a regular basis. Uh, Some people don't want a pastoral visit, and they're the ones that need it the most. And so if you're waiting on somebody to uh, schedule a request to visit, make an appointment, uh, that's going to be, I think, create a real failure in in pastoral care. We need to get much more... uh, committed to what Paul calls uh, the elders to in Acts chapter 20, uh, to shepherd the flock. Peter, that we are under shepherds, under Christ. We need to be in the homes of our people. We need, as ruling elders, to uh, be taking part in that program. Now, ministers need to train ruling elders how to do it. Sometimes they tell them to do it, but they don't work out how to do it, and it's good As I trained ruling elders in the past, I would actually go over what a pastoral visit entailed. We then would do some um, uh, role uh, play on the visit, and then I would take them with me on a couple of visits and debrief afterwards, go with them on a visit, debrief afterwards, and then throw them in the deep end. But we really do need to get back to this. I have uh, an article that was, uh, what, in Ref twenty. one, on uh, pastoral care that's accessible. Uh, And if you don't find it there, we can just send it to you from the seminary.
0: I believe we have that article. I'm checking now. I believe we have it up at gpts.edu slash resources and yes we do okay good uh, pastoral visitation by joseph a pipa jr we have it in a printer-friendly format if you go to gpds.edu slash resources or you go to gpds.edu slash pipa i think uh, i think it's linked to on on both of those pages great thank you for the question isaiah and pastors as you listen to this podcast consider this an exhortation visit with your people don't force yourself <laughs> upon the visitation. Ian Hamilton counsels us wisely here at the school that you always offer it, and you even, uh, you even encourage your people to take advantage of it. But if somebody's really resistant to it, especially if you're a new and a young pastor, uh, bear with them in, in love and patience. Uh, next, Isaiah asks, What advice would you give it to a young man who seeks eldership, feels called, but also feels young and inexperienced?
1: What I would do is go to my session and say, I believe that I am called to be an elder, and I would like you to test my gifts and to train me, and tell them the areas that you think you need to work in, and ask them to interact with you on that. So don't just be passive about it. Uh, Go to your your session. Go to your pastor and say, I really feel called. That's a, a proper thing you do. You know, Paul says it is, in fact, a good thing to desire the office. So follow up with that and get them to work with you.
0: Thank you for the questions, Isaiah. It's been a real joy going through them the last episode and this time as well. Moving on, we have a question from Dustin Kreider in Tennessee. He says, some Reformed Credo Baptists argue that since the Mosaic Covenant was conditional, had curses, was broken by Israel, and was characterized by law, not grace or faith, it was, in fact, a covenant of works and not part of the covenant of grace. Please explain the biblical arguments for understanding the Mosaic Covenant to be part of the covenant of grace.
1: Thank you very much, Dustin. The um, Palmer Robertson, in his book on Christ and the Covenants, does a remarkable job of showing the interrelationship of the covenants. And one of the exercises is covenant administration. He shows how... The Abrahamic covenant uh, moves into, or I'll put put it the other way: the Mosaic covenant is built out of the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant is built out of the Abrahamic covenant. So texts like Exodus three or Second uh, Samuel seven, Exodus three shows how uh, what God doing in the Exodus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Second uh, Samuel seven shows how what God's promising to David is growing out of the Davidic covenant. We also see this in the uh, things that take place structurally. So you go to David, and uh, the land promise is fulfilled. God also in the uh, Mosaic Covenant promised a place where he'd put his name. That takes place in the Davidic Covenant. There's all those types of relationships. Now, with respect to the uh, covenantal nature of the Old Covenant, Although God tells them they broke it, he he himself is going to renew it. We see this two places. One is in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I've watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, and I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a Uh, husband to them, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. So you see there that even though they broke it, God in making the new covenant is renewing uh, what he's promised to uh, Israel and Judah. And with respect to the whole idea that the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of works, one of the most remarkable passages is in Ezekiel after chapter 16, after God shows the treachery of both the northern and southern kingdom, he then says in verse 16, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so we see again that uh, God is, in grace, coming to the old covenant people, renewing that covenant with an oath uh, to them. Now, you gave some background, Dustin, uh, with respect to the question of these, uh, the book by Jeffrey Johnson, The Fatal Flaw of the Theology Behind Infant Baptism. Let me just say that even if the Mosaic Covenant was primarily a covenant of works and grace, it's not. But that would in no way affect the covenant of grace, would it? It would not affect the, uh, the genealogical aspect of the covenant of grace. Every covenant administration, including the one with Adam before the fall, every administration of grace, also the Mosaic Covenant and uh, the Davidic Covenant, all included believers and their seed. Isaiah repeats that in chapter 59, 21. Remember, the prophets are working out of the Mosaic and the Davidic covenant. And there's the promise, once again, of God giving the Holy Spirit to, uh, to our seed. So covenant succession is a part of all covenant theology. So actually, if even if the Mosaic covenant were a covenant of works, it still reinforces the idea of covenant succession. And the fact that if, in fact, it were a broken covenant. It says nothing about the Abrahamic covenant, which is what Paul takes in Galatians uh, chapter 3 to demonstrate that we all are the children of Abraham. And so it's not true, but if it were, there's no fatal flaw here because God's covenant uh, has gone through the ages with, with believers and their seed.
0: Thank you for the question, Dustin. And if you have follow-ups on that, again, send it in. There's so much to unpack there, and particularly as you look at uh, different points made in in books that that seek to tear down the Pado Baptist position, and we have another related question here from another gentleman, Matt Walkenhorst of Lagrange, Kentucky, asks, "What does it mean for Christ to be a mediator of wrath? Does this help explain Christ's m- mediation for those who are in the covenant yet
1: are unregenerate?" Zach and I wrestled, uh, Matt, with what you mean by mediator of wrath, I think what you're really asking is uh, how does Christ mediate for those who are in the covenant yet not spiritually united to him? Basically, he doesn't. Uh, We need to distinguish between the covenant of grace, which is the eternal covenant. I follow the larger catechism made with Christ and his elect in him. So he's the mediator of the covenant of grace, and all of his elect are in him as their covenant head, just as all mankind are in Adam as his covenant head. But the covenant administration, where the covenant is administered, is in the church. And so we know that the church consists of those who are truly regenerate and those who are not. There's been different ways it's been described to be in the covenant externally and not internally. So yes, by my membership in the, the visible church, I am uh, by that profession under Christ headship. But if I'm not regenerate, I'm not under his mediatorial headship. I'm simply under him as king in the church. Others speak of it being uh, legal and living, so that legally a person is under the covenant. And There's great advantages there. You know, Paul discusses those in Romans chapter 9 with respect to old covenant people who had at that point not come to faith in Christ. And he says to them, you know, it belongs the covenants, the promises, uh, the worship, uh, adoption, Uh, and from whom comes Christ, God himself. Uh, Covenant children are under the preaching of the law, but also of the gospel. They're under the fervent appeals to take hold of Christ. God's brought them into covenant, and we challenge them then to make covenant with God. Uh, And that's how they then will move from a position of uh, external uh, participation and covenant benefits, which are real for them, into that living union. But many of those children are regenerate from the womb, uh, and they are uh, in the covenant in a living way. They grow in their knowledge of Christ and of, of the gospel. So the, at least that's how I look at it. Uh, uh, Burkhoff has a very good discussion of that in his systematic that is pretty simple and brief if you want to look at that as well.
0: Thank you for the question, Matt, and, and if we're missing the boat here on what you meant by mediator of wrath, please uh, follow up with us so we can really address the crux of your question, but I hope that Dr. Pipe's explanation was helpful. I found it helpful in both our discussions about this question and what he just said on air here. Our next question is from Anonymous, and this is a very sensitive question, but an important one. Is there a reasonable amount of time a pastor should serve before he takes a new call? For example, I'm a school teacher, but would find it strange leaving a school after a short period of time and using spiritualized language like <laughs> called to a different school. In my experience, I have found few pastors being called to smaller and less significant churches. <laughs> well,
1: Anonymous, you have surely struck a chord with me. I've been plucking on this chord for a long time. Uh, you are exactly right. Uh, We, as pastors, uh, can tend to rationalize a lot of things, and a call to another church, unfortunately, is sometimes that. Now, I like to put it this way. For me to be called to a church, it takes both the vote of a congregation and the vote of a presbytery. That is what God has given us uh, in the external part of the call Uh, is a very good way by which Christ leads us. But it seems that when most men uh, leave a church, they simply have spoken to another church and they believe they're called. Uh, And some of those men don't even consult with their elders. Some will tell them, but they don't consult. Um, And so you're kind of playing one-upmanship at that point. What should happen is, and this was, we have some good historical examples of men who did this. Uh, Thornwell was a very good example. Twice he had calls out of the state of South Carolina to very prestigious churches, but his press trade needed him at that point in what he was doing for the education of the young men in the state, and they did not allow him to accept those calls. Um, and he abided by that. So... What I encourage men to do is that if, uh, if they believe they need to go to another place, they need to sit down with their elders and discuss it. But part of that discussion is, I know early on in my ministry, one of my things was I had certain goals that I wanted to see accomplished in, uh, in my church. I had a little church in Mississippi. I got the invitation to receive a call from a church that, man, it had been great not because of size but because the spirituality of the people um and but you know as i prayed about it even take it to my session because i realized that you know in whatever it was at that point four years that i was just beginning to get a foundation laid for for what that congregation uh, needed um but if it's been a bit—so in the two instances, when I left that little church in Mississippi, when I left the church in Houston, Texas, and when I left actually a church that we started in California, even though I was teaching full-time to accept this call, I had lengthy discussions with the elders in terms of of uh, the need of the church, my gifts, used there elsewhere. How would the church do if, in fact, I were to go on? So all those things were on the uh, on the plate— and we prayerfully talk through those things. And it's only when the elders concurred with me that, yes, we think you should take that call. Do we take the next step and go to Presbytery with that? Now, the first time we did that, I know the elders were very disappointed. They were hoping Presbytery was going to do what they did. And Presbytery got rid of me in about 30 seconds. So, um, but that is... I think the biblical way. I mean, I don't see how congregation enters into the call and doesn't have to enter into. I mean, yes, there's a vote, but a real sincere, prayerful discussion uh, about because it's not just me as the pastor going on. It's a it's a flock with which that I've been entrusted. So. This is what we encourage the men here to do. Some abide by it. Another principle, you know, sometimes a man needs to leave simply because it's quite obvious that um, the ministry is not going to work. But even that should be take place with discussion of the elders and the shepherding committee and the presbytery. Um, but I never put my name anywhere. Again, God put me in this particular place god wants me out of there then in his providence he will have another church Uh, he'll lead them to contact me
0: well you said that sometimes it's quite obvious the ministry is not going anywhere and you need to leave or maybe the ministry is doing okay but you still need to leave what what would be some obvious markers uh, well that would lead a man to then seek no uh,
1: only if it was disastrous i mean everybody was against him the church is going to split if he stayed um Maybe he's worked with Presbytery, and you know it's still, if he stayed, the church would split. And those are things that still shouldn't be his own decision. He should be involved with the elders. If the elders are against him, uh, let's just say they're pushing back against the biblical ministry. I don't want anything to do with it. Then uh, they're probably wanting
0: him to leave anyway. Well,
1: that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That, that, this case is what a man should seek to leave. That's all I'm saying, but not in a normal situation.
0: What if there's not outright conflict, but let's say the man has a special circumstance in his family, and in order to care for his child, say, get the right medical care for his kid, or provide enough for his, his wife and children, um, and things are good in the church, but they're just, those those resources aren't there. Would it be appropriate for the man in that situation to in, to initiate the process. I of think if you work that problem. through with his elders. you'd have to work it out with his elders. Right. Yeah.
1: So it's still going to be the elders involved. Yep. The, yes, we can't pay you. Now, they could seek outside funds to help if it was yep. a matter of salary. But it's a matter of, of a child, and we've known men that to, had to get calls near children's hospitals, um, and you're out in the middle of the boonies. Then that's probably something, but you're still going to work it through with your elders and your presbytery. You yeah. just, no,
0: I'm not contesting that at all. Uh, I'm but just no, wondering I mean, if that, ever that's, a time to initiate. that's
1: the exception. Yeah, of course. Okay, of that's course. all I'm saying. There are, I said there are times when it can be necessary, but they're few and far between. And I'm afraid I've heard uh, Pastor Robbins say this on more than one occasion. And basically, I speak of no individual, no man comes to mind that's living. But uh, men will stay someplace, you know, four to five years, and then they think they have this call. And what they do, they go to the next place. They simply regurgitate the sermons that they've done, and they don't do a, really a lick of real work for the rest of their ministries. And yet they're also going. And it's it's also a bad attitude. Your cynicism is well called for. Um, in my experience, i found few pastors being called to smaller and less significant churches Unfortunately, some of the elder statesmen. I, I know a former pastor of mine, um, when I was in my little church in Mississippi, perfectly happy. I'd be happy to be there today. Uh, he told me I was. You know, I needed to look now at these other churches. It was time to uh, to move up, and uh, that's is is reprehensible. Unless the church can't afford. It. There are many
0: considerations, and my my point in asking that question is we don't want to set our responsibilities at home against our. Responsibility. No, but it's still calling. a conjunction but with, always the with the elders. Yes. Right. And I, I would never contest that. In fact, I lament the fact that it seems even in, in our Presbyterian denominations, not just the PCA, but certainly in our context, that the whole process of calling a pastor is really much more akin to uh, finding a job. And and these are two different things. I, I love the stories of Thornwell and Palmer and and the other 19th century Presbyterians where they never really went out looking for a call. Churches called them and, and didn't even call them directly. Sometimes they wouldn't even hear about the attempts because it would get stopped at the presbytery level before they even were aware of it. But um, we, we wax on and on here. Our next question comes from Mark Rademacher of Santa Maria, California. He says, "Before the new covenant, did the Gentiles live under the old covenant? Did only the Jews live under the old covenant? If the Gentiles did not live under the old
1: covenant, what covenant did they live under?" Mark, I'm assuming by old covenant you mean uh, that which is the, the Israel was under the Abrahamic and Mosaic and Davidic covenant. No, the Gentiles were not under that. That was the covenant that God made peculiarly with His people. They were the church. And they were in covenant with God. Now, at times, Gentiles would be incorporated uh, into that church. Ezekiel speaks of that in chapter 47, but we see it in the history. I mean, you know, Boaz's mother was uh, uh, the harlot from Jericho, Ruth, a Moabitess. Um, Uriah was a Hittite. Uh, And so there's there's always was a record of Gentiles being engrafted into the church, and that helps us understand that circumcision was not primarily an ethnic sign. It was a spiritual sign. And so just as there were in the church those who were in it externally, as we spoke of earlier, um, those that were in it internally had all the spiritual benefits of circumcision and Gentiles engrafted in All other people, both then and now, not in the church, live under the consequences and obligation of the covenant of works. Now, the covenant of works per se is no longer in existence because uh, the covenant head with whom it was made sinned. And Christ, then, is the second Adam in the covenant of grace, uh, saved his people. But the demands, God's God does not change. If one wants eternal life, one must obey God perfectly. And that's a very important thing to say in your evangelism. And if one does not obey God perfectly, one is going to hell. And so everybody outside of Christ is under those two stipulations or sanctions out of the covenant of works. The beauty of the covenant of grace is that Christ kept the law for us perfectly, so that when we come into union with him, that perfect righteousness is uh, put to our moral bank account, and we are constituted legally righteous, and by his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, we, uh, we have paid the penalty of eternal damnation, and our sins are pardoned eternally. Everybody else outside of Christ, though, until they would come to him, are simply under those obligations of the covenant of works
0: couldn't we go even further and say that they're living
1: under the curse of adam's failure well that's what's what i mean yeah, yeah. that's why i said it under the sanctions of it
0: yep very good our next question comes from william Tejeda of point sunset texas william always a joy to have questions from you there is a question in the children's catechism that asks something along the lines of can you repent and believe in christ by your own power The answer is no, I cannot repent and believe unless the Holy Spirit changes my heart. I struggle with teaching my children this question. I do not wish my son or daughter to question his or her regeneration, but would rather consistently preach Christ crucified for sinners and the need for repentance and faith. Am I overthinking this? Of course, I wish for my children to understand that God is sovereign in salvation, but might truths such as these be better suited for an older age or perhaps even reworded?
1: William, I do think you're overthinking it. I think it's good for any of us to be reminded that apart from God's sovereign grace, uh, we cannot believe or repent. Uh, So even though I have believed and repented, I am very happy to be reminded of that. The question doesn't assume that the children have not repented and believed. The question simply is instructing them of the necessity, just as Jesus himself taught that marvel not that I say unto you, one must be born again. One cannot spiritually understand, let alone enter into the kingdom of God, unless one is born again. And so it's a very important teaching. And in fact, in the history of massive conversions, the doctrine of regeneration uh, is, was one of the primary truths uh, that what was preached and taught. So I agree with you. I I want my children to understand they're in the covenant with God, and he's made promises to them, but I'm going to tell them not so much, yes, we hold Christ before them, but we need to become more covenantal. You're in covenant with God, and he is calling on you now to make covenant with him. You do that as you rest in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. And... We all know that to do that, we must be born again by the Holy Spirit. Now, I trust that you have been born again. You make this profession of faith. Uh, but we also know it's all, all of God's grace.
0: I think John 3 is the text to take our children to. I mean, Jesus speaking with Nicodemus at, at, at night is is exactly the kind of conversation I think we should speak with our children. Nicodemus was in the covenant. He was a member of the covenant community. He was steeped in the scriptures and knowledgeable, the teacher in Israel, and Jesus presents to him the need to be born again, to be born from above, Um, be born by the Holy Spirit. Am am I wrong on that, Dr. Peter? No, you're right. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Tim Miller of St. John's, Florida. When we say PCA churches are elder-led, should this imply staff positions such as youth minister, community-slash-discipleship directors, children's directors, etc., should all be ordained elders? Well, I would say if you're going to call somebody a minister, that person needs to be an ordained elder, but let's say youth director. Or is it sufficient to simply have them under the authority of the elders, that is, elder-led but staff-run ministry? What advice might you give to safeguard a staff-run church from perhaps inadvertently becoming staff-led? Some congregational churches seem to go to the other extreme where every staff member is a pastor, but not actually exercising the biblical role of pastor. That's a good point.
1: It is, Tim. Um, yeah, so let me just piggyback first on what Zach said. Uh, we, we don't want to talk about youth ministers or ministers of music or whatever. Uh, that word minister always implies a, a person who is ordained to the Word and the sacraments. Um, second, we've got a, too many of staff in most churches. Uh, we size of churches, you need need staff, but we also want to see, particularly with the children, uh, uh, parents more involved as they are. But the elders must keep absolute control of that ministry in terms of knowing what is being taught, um, what material is being used, what is the conduct of this person, and to exercise a careful... Uh, exercise of their spiritual authority. So I like your phrase, elder-led but staff-run. Well, maybe not elder-led but staff-administered. I think that's what you mean by run. Um, People under the elders delegated authority, but clearly with accountability. Uh, Unfortunately, I think your second part is also correct. A lot of elders simply go the default position and say we've got this staff and these are things we don't need to worry about that is very dangerous and i know personally of things even today that are going on in churches where the elders are allowing things that they shouldn't be allowing now as to the congregational church um the, the reformed baptists have a two office view and this would not really what you say would not describe them they really treat all their elders as pastors although they'll recognize that one or two by gifts and training will do primarily the pulpit ministry. Uh, Also elders should be much more involved in teaching uh, ladies bible studies and young people's bible studies in Sunday school if we have if we have elders and and even without a staff run church the elders need to know what's being taught in Sunday school, uh, who's teaching, Uh, they need to be approved by the elders so it's just we need much more proper elder oversight.
0: Thank you for that question, Tim, and thank you for your time and, and answers, Dr. Piper. It's always a joy to to be with you on these conversations. Uh, I would encourage our listeners, as you consider your year-end giving, not to forget Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Our year-end appeal letter will be going out to some of you and perhaps even most of you who are li- tuning in today. Uh, Towards the end of this month, I think November 29th is when my my mailhouse told me that it's it's gonna it's gonna go out. And as you know, we we very much depend on giving during the month of December in order to uh, supply and resource our activities throughout the year. And the Lord's been very kind to us for the last few years. Um, We have been able to stay ahead of the game and provide for our students without distraction. There has not been financial stress here. However, that doesn't mean we're not dependent on the the generous giving of God's people uh, at all times. That's what allows us to keep our tuition low so our students can graduate with a burden for gospel ministry and not a burden of tuition debt from seminary. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for praying for us and this remarkable group of students that we have in our midst right now. And thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.